0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 15th, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, editor-in-chief, and Lindsay Baden, deputy editor. Eric and Lindsay, today I'd like to talk about the changing landscape of science in COVID-19 as it's been reflected in scientific and medical publishing. During the beginning of the epidemic, we were deluged with manuscripts. At this point, though, that slowed quite a bit. Eric, what do the metrics look like at this point?
1: Steve, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know at the height in the spring of 2020, we were receiving more than 200 COVID-related manuscripts each day, seven days a week. Now that's slowed to a trickle with no more than a few daily and many days where we have none at all. Of course, we're only able to publish a small percentage of what's submitted. I think it's difficult to measure interest, but I suspect that we're publishing an even smaller percentage of what we receive at this point.
2: So, Steve... You know, three years ago, as we faced this emerging pathogen that we knew so little about, we as a community were responding as providers, as researchers, as public health authorities to rapidly understand what was emerging and what was the significance. That required different types of evidence or information to guide us, particularly given the need for information rapidly. And case reports, case series, cohort studies, and then finally, more formal research in the terms of randomized trials emerge. But those all took time. And so, Eric, as you point out, we received a large number of manuscripts in part due to the imperative to inform the community to be able to respond, protect themselves, and care for patients. And You know, unfortunately, not all of that information was as insightful, directive, or even correct in how we as a community interpreted it. But it was needed to guide the response, given the overwhelming nature of the illness three years ago and then over the last two to three years.
1: Lindsay, I think you bring up an important point, and it's one we've discussed before. Early on, we just didn't have any information. And as a publisher, we felt it was really important to get something out there, something that was believable, even if it wasn't the gold standard time of evidence. But of course, as time has gone on, the standards have changed, and we're requiring more and more high-quality evidence for what we recommend that people do.
2: I guess I'd modify a little bit. I'm not sure our standards have changed. We always want to publish the best evidence available to help providers take care of the patients in front of them. And what's different about COVID, SARS CoV 2, was the speed with which it spread, how little we knew, and the overwhelming need for individuals to protect themselves and providers to care for their patients. And so we published, as you point out, the best evidence available at the time, much of it incredibly weak, but timely given the decisions providers had to make. Fortunately, over time, better evidence can be generated and therefore provided, and we have the opportunity to help publish and disseminate the highest quality evidence
0: that's available, which was what we continue to do today. Obviously, there have been a lot of changes in the COVID epidemic. While there continue to be new cases, the number of deaths has fallen dramatically, physicians have become far more comfortable with advising patients and treating disease, and the knowledge of COVID in the general public has improved considerably, even though there's still a good deal of circulating misinformation. So I'd like to ask about what you'd like to learn about COVID-19 and how we should be managing the outbreak today. Well, let me start with a bit about what we know. What kinds of submissions are we seeing now that we're not publishing?
1: Let me start by saying that, of course, we welcome any submissions and we continue to try to give feedback to authors very quickly. There's certainly a lot of important research going on. At this point, though, a good deal of it is not of general enough interest for our pages. Just to name several categories, we continue to hear about interesting or unusual manifestations of COVID, though largely at the case report or case series level, where it's difficult to establish causality. So we've published fewer of these case reports and descriptive case series, although we understand these remain helpful for clinicians, and they are still useful, particularly in specialty journals. We continue to receive manuscripts describing serologic responses to vaccination. But since we don't fully understand how well these correlate with protection against disease, particularly against severe disease, we're publishing fewer of these. Even the large studies of treatment and protection are difficult for us because by the time they're submitted, they're describing the responses to viral variants that are no longer circulating. But let me end where I began. There is still a lot of interesting work out there, and we are happy to evaluate any manuscript in any area of COVID.
2: Eric. I would like to say that we're done with COVID, but unfortunately, COVID is not done with us. And as you point out, insights which advance critical aspects of our understanding of the disease and the consequences of the disease are of great interest. However, given that science in this area has advanced so much over the last three years, we want the highest quality evidence to guide our understanding of the problem that's being unraveled and the treatment that's being developed. A real challenge with treatments, as you point out, Eric, is that prospective clinical trials take time. Fortunately, in the context of COVID, these trials are now able to be done in months, which is quite an advance, not only for COVID, but also for science in general and how we think about doing clinical trials to advance our understanding of the disease or problem in question. The problem with COVID is the virus is evolving in weeks to months, so faster than these trials can be done. So the insights that are able to transcend a given viral variant and allow us to understand principles of the biology of this disease or the response or the countermeasure development are of great interest because they can transcend the variant of today. But high-quality data will likely have studied the variant of yesterday. So we, in science, need to make sure that what we learn can transcend the transient nature of the given variant. And we know there are studies going on out there, we get to see them, and we encourage continued research in this area because this will allow us to get ahead of the virus,
0: even as it mutates faster than our studies can be completed. So we've talked about what we're not publishing much of, but what kinds of things would you like to be seeing? And what are the major challenges that we're facing? Eric, I'll start with you, and then we can alternate. Well,
1: let me throw out something here, and that is it would be great to see vaccines that produce broader protection. This is a difficult area, both technically and logistically. Technically, we don't know what will produce broader protection, and our only measures of protection that are available in the short term are serologic. We don't fully understand the correlation between serologic responses. Especially for new viruses and protection. That being said, there has been evidence that infection with distantly related viruses may produce broader protection. And perhaps that some vaccines can induce protection that is somewhat broader. Essentially, what we're looking for are vaccines that anticipate the future. Instead of there continuing to evolve variants that can escape, perhaps we could get vaccines that produced. Protection against something that might evolve in the future. It's a tall order because evolution is probably smarter than we are. Nevertheless, it would be great to see some more work coming out in that area.
2: Eric, I think you raised two important concepts how to develop a vaccine immunogen that could be, for example, pan coronavirus or to an epitope that's invariant and cannot change over time because it's required for viral success. Whether or not these are achievable are unclear, but being able to approach that may allow us to develop a vaccine that is more durable through time. Speaking of more durable, we do want our vaccine-elicited immunity to be more durable and to be relevant where we contact the pathogen, in this case, the respiratory mucosa, and how best to augment the immune responses brought out in these arenas what is tricky and you allude to this eric is how do we know that a vaccine brings out an immune response that we care about the holy grail in vaccinology of a correlate of protection and can we discern what the correlate of protection is for a given vaccine which may be dependent on the delivery system as well as the immunogen that's being delivered and it may depend on the variant that's circulating and that tomorrow's variant may not be as susceptible to today's vaccine. And therefore we need to better come up with in vitro laboratory parameters, correlates of protection that allow us to better understand if the new vaccine is likely to be effective. We do this for influenza where each year the influenza vaccine is qualified based upon immunologic criteria that have been established over decades. One can argue that we need to improve these criteria as these may help our flu vaccines improve, but we need the same construct for SARS-CoV-2 vaccines as this will allow us to iterate faster. And I know scientists, public health authorities, and companies are all working hard in this area And we look forward to the insights that can allow us to more effectively and efficiently develop the new vaccines that we'll need.
1: Lindsay, your mention of mucosal vaccines brings up another thing on the wish list. At the beginning of the epidemic, when vaccines were first introduced, they were amazing because not only did they prevent severe disease as they continue to do now, but they really prevented any disease at all and probably limited transmission as well. Now, that largely ended as the virus continued to mutate, and current vaccines have a limited ability to prevent infection and prevent any disease. But it would be great if we had vaccines that could do that again. Clearly, the approaches we're taking right now are unlikely to provide strong protection against infection. But perhaps the kinds of approaches that you're talking about, a mucosal vaccine, might increase protection against infection. Now, there are many caveats to that. Such protection may not be long-lasting. It may require frequent exposure to antigen, something that just won't be practical. But it's worth a try, and I'm hoping that we see
2: more work in that area.
0: And what about treatments? What would you like to see
2: there? So, Steve, I think that there have been tremendous advances in treatments such as the development of monoclonal antibodies and the iterative technology, as well as antivirals. And I think in both of these fronts, we need more advances. On the monoclonal antibody side, we need to better understand which targets are likely conserved through time and therefore worthy targets to develop mAbs, monoclonal antibodies for. Because the big weakness in this approach has been the selection of a singular or perhaps two targets that an antibody or a pair of antibodies may go after that allows the virus to evolve around because it's so focused. Very attractive technology, very scalable. However, it is limited by the ability of evolution or viral escape. The antiviral side is incredibly attractive and we have several agents that are effective. However, they have substantial limitations. Remdesivir requires intravenous administration. nirmatrelvir ritonavir has significant drug-drug interactions. And these medications have largely been studied, or at least the initial efficacy, in an unimmune, unvaccinated population. So we need better agents that have favorable pharmacokinetic properties so they can be used more easily, And earlier in illness, often with an outpatient positive test in an outpatient setting, and we need to better understand their strengths and weaknesses as the virus changes and the immunity in the population changes. But it is terrific that these agents have been developed and are able to be used widely, at least in certain circumstances. And as we've also seen, agents with novel mechanisms of action, such as molnupiravir, and early studies on oral forms of remdesivir analog have also emerged, and are very attractive to better understand their activity and, therefore, where they may fit in in our response.
1: Lindsay, I agree that it's great to see the progress that's been made, and we know that there's work continuing. One of the issues with the antivirals, of course, is accessibility. In this country, initially, the antivirals were made freely available. As the public health emergency expires, it's not clear how available these things will be, particularly for those with no insurance. And of course, there is a larger equity issue which pervades all of the approaches to preventing and treating disease, and that's the global availability of these agents they're expensive. They're going to be too expensive to use in much of the world. So it would be great to see something that is widely available and inexpensive enough to be used in parts of the world where it's just not feasible to be spending a lot of money on these agents.
2: So Eric, I think you raised several very important points. We need the community to do the critical studies to demonstrate where the maximal benefit is of these agents. And these studies need to be done in all communities affected, both domestic and international, especially in those communities that have less resources. That will allow proper policy to be able to be made to then push the global community to deliver these therapies to all who need it. So I think the equity issue is tremendously important and it permeates all stages of the scientific endeavor. But I do believe that through the best data, the best policy can be made and we can push government leaders, public health leaders, financial parts of the economy to do what is right and to provide the support needed to treat all who could benefit from treatment. And that is an area I think we have a high level of interest in wanting to promote healthy discussion to
0: improve the equity of all who could benefit from these therapies. So before we go on with treatments, I want to ask about public policy and social measures. That's been evolving. Is it going to continue to evolve? Will we get to a point where there'll be no further need for masking, for example, social distancing? What do you see happening there?
1: Steve, it's a really interesting question, and I think it's a good follow-up to Lindsay's point about health policy in general. In a very general sense, COVID has pointed up many of the weaknesses in healthcare systems around the world. Healthcare systems, of course, differ in different countries, and therefore the weaknesses are different in different countries. But Lindsay was just talking about the equity in healthcare delivery and how we have not done a very good job of that And certainly, I'd love to see us taking lessons from COVID and applying them and seeing some advances being made for health in general and not just for COVID. For the very specific question of social measures, you know, that's been a difficult issue. Masking, for example, remains controversial. And there has been, I think, a misinterpretation of some of the studies that are out there in the popular press that suggests that masking doesn't work at all. Of course, that's not true. Masking works if you wear masks. However, broad government policies that require or recommend masking won't work if people don't wear masks, despite the policy. So it's not that simple. It's important to remember that there is a large group of people who are particularly susceptible to disease, or more importantly, particularly susceptible to getting severe disease if they contract COVID. For them, these sorts of social measures, distancing and masks, remain critical. Very, very important. So at the very least, it's going to be important to have a society that allows people to take the steps that they think are necessary for their own health in order to protect our most vulnerable
2: populations. Eric, I think you raise a very important point where, again, we need more data to guide us. But as tools emerge, that are effective in preventing certain types of COVID-associated problems, be they masking, physical distancing, be they vaccines, be they monoclonals or antivirals that can be used to either prevent infection or treat very early infection. We need to develop strategies that can apply to those who will most benefit. And whether it's the neonates who have not yet been vaccinated or as you mentioned, our growing population with a weakened immune system, either from cancer chemotherapy or organ transplantation or a variety of the biologic agents that are being heavily used to treat different autoimmune diseases, we need to understand who does or doesn't respond to a given preventive intervention and then how the menu of prevention strategies can be used to protect those who are most vulnerable during their most vulnerable time periods. And their work could be very interesting in helping us understand how to optimally deploy strategies that have emerged that have clear value in certain settings.
1: Speaking of strategies that work in certain settings, I want to get back to the therapeutics question for a moment and talk about hospitalized patients. Certainly, enormous strides we're making in improving survival of patients who had severe disease early on. And the measures varied considerably from really simple measures like prone positioning, which made a surprisingly enormous difference in caring for patients, to corticosteroid therapy, which also has had an impact, to more elaborate anti-inflammatory drugs. We've published quite a bit in this area. Of course, people continue to die, and it would be nice if we could do better. Not sure we can do better because we enter into the area of the therapy for ARDS, which is problematic after many, many years of study. However, one potential benefit of working on COVID is perhaps we can have more insights into therapies that would be more effective in ARDS, and I'd love to see some of that work.
2: Eric, I agree. I am just hopeful that with broad population immunity, we will continue to see low levels of hospitalization due to COVID, so that we do not have enough illness to be able to study COVID hospitalization questions. Having said that, for those who are hospitalized with COVID, improving these therapies, as you mentioned, is of great interest.
0: Okay, another topic. What are your thoughts about long COVID?
1: Steve, I think that long COVID has been an area that has been extraordinarily difficult. Many people are suffering from a variety of symptoms after they recover from the acute illness of COVID. But not only do we have a limited understanding of the pathophysiology of this syndrome, but we don't even have a definition for the syndrome that makes a lot of sense. People have symptoms all over the map, and rather than a single syndrome, this is likely to be multiple syndromes that may have different causes and different therapeutic approaches. I think we are disappointingly still very early on in understanding long COVID. And I think we really would like to see some better insights followed by better therapies for this group of people.
2: I completely agree, Eric. I think long COVID is a significant problem for many who have had COVID. However, without a definition, so we can begin to understand the myriad of associated syndromes, which very likely, as you point out, have different pathogenesis. It makes it very hard to care for these patients and to plan appropriately targeted interventions, which are of high interest to all.
1: I think that this conversation, Lindsay, has really pointed up the fact that there's much to learn. This is a disease that's affected likely billions of people in the world with all kinds of manifestations, with varying severity, and with consequences like long COVID that we really don't understand. So we started out by talking about the kinds of manuscripts that we're seeing and not accepting at this point. But we really do welcome more work and would really appreciate the opportunity to be able to review some of the outstanding research out there. So please keep sending us stuff.
0: Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.